Kerry Close wrote an article for Money titled, This is Why Rich People Aren't Always Happy. Uh, one reason given is that wealth seems to make people less generous. I read that in a study by researchers at the University of California, Berkeley, participants playing a game of Monopoly grew progressively meaner as their wealth grew by talking down to their poorer competitors and assuming more dominant positions. Most egregiously, they also consumed a larger portion of a bowl of pretzels meant to be shared equally. Now, I love Monopoly, and I must say something about that resonates with me, sadly. Um, the article also said this, quote, as people climb into higher tax brackets, they value independence more and social connections less. That's interesting. So the article concluded like this, if you are lucky enough to be rich, be mindful of your scientifically proven tendency to isolate yourself. And if you're still feeling down, try giving some of your wealth away to charity. Here at the end of this letter, Paul turned to rich Christians and how they should act in the local church. Ephesus was a prominent and wealthy city of the Roman Empire, and some people in the Ephesian church were rich. Uh, Paul warned of the dangers of desiring to be rich and the love of money in verses 9 and 10, and, and yet Paul's comments in verses 17 through 19 show that riches are not inherently evil and can be enjoyed and used for tremendous good. My aim this morning is to give you an investment strategy for your wealth, different from the one that culture gives you. God's strategy of wealth management will make you truly rich, truly rich. This is an urgent message because wealth and materialism are so prevalent in America um, and because it relates to eternity. Paul began, as for the rich in this present age, the present age is right now, and there is a coming age. The economy of the two ages is completely different. To be rich in one is not to be rich in the other. Paul told of how to invest the riches of this present age for the greater gains of the coming age. How can we live to store up treasure, abundant treasures in the next life? Well, here's the investment strategy. Paul gives, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. So number one, do not be haughty. God commands us not to be snobs. Uh, wealth is no indicator of worth, work ethic, or happiness. Uh, sadly, many people measure their self-worth by their net worth, uh, which promotes either haughtiness or hopelessness. Haughty people ignore the basic Christian doctrine of God's providence. Verse 17, God richly provides us with everything. God provides God gives and gives and gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. How could we be haughty when all that we have has been given to us by God? 1 Samuel 2.7 says, The Lord makes poor and makes rich. God is sovereign over our economic status. One of my favorite parts of the Heidelberg Catechism says this. I love it. God's providence is is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, 
and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come not by chance. This is the key part. But by his fatherly hand. His fatherly hand. God's providence gives dignity to the poor and humility to the rich and gratitude to both. Haughtiness is silly. It's insane when everything that you have is from God. Paul gave us more. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Number two, never set your hopes on riches because they are uncertain, completely uncertain. Riches can be deceptive. They can create the illusion of security. Even invincibility in some cases, but riches are volatile. Proverbs 23 verses 4 and 5 say this. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. The stock market crashes. Businesses burn to the ground. Thieves steal. Inflation skyrockets. Employees are laid off and corporations go bankrupt. Maybe we need something more secure to trust in. Jesse Livermore was among America's wealthiest men in the early 1900s. He made money during the Wall Street crash of 1929, devastating for many people, not for him. And afterwards, he was worth $100 million. He owned mansions around the world, a fleet of limos, two yachts and more. He is said to have remarked this, quote, all through time, people have basically acted and reacted the same way in the market as a result of greed, fear, ignorance, and hope. Hope. After gaining and losing massive fortunes in 1940 with a net worth of over $5 million, Jesse Livermore shot himself in the cloakroom of the Sherry Netherland Hotel in Manhattan. How precarious to hope in riches. How much confidence do you put in insurance, uh, investments, savings? Is, is your prosperity muffling the volume of your need of God? Morgan Stanley and Wells Fargo, they would be glad for you to hope in the riches of this world of this present age. But just remember, riches are uncertain. And there's something much better to set your hopes on. Number three, always set your hopes on God. Always set your hopes on God. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Set your hopes on the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the immortal God who lives in unapproachable light because he is always certain. Listen to what Psalm 146 verse 5 says, and don't take this lightly. This is huge. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Did you hear that? People whose hope is in God are blessed, happy. The nucleus of true blessedness is hope in God, hope in God. Do you remember the true widow from uh, chapter 5? 
with no husband, no children, no grandchildren, where did she set her hope? She set her hope on God. And her prayer life confirmed that her hope was in God. In her need, she sought God as she put confidence in Him. My confidence is in you. I don't have much, so I'm hoping in you, and I'm looking to you, and I'm pleading out to you. That was her posture. Let me talk to all of you parents for a moment. Study Psalm 78. Study it sometime. The way to help your kids set their hope on God is to teach them the law and gospel. To relentlessly remind them of the magnificent works of God. The mighty works of God build hope. Get your kids in church to sit under the preaching of the law and the gospel. Talk about it at home. Train them in the scriptures. We set our hopes on what we actually believe will come through for us. That's where we put our hope. God is the only sovereign. Riches or poverty, whatever your, your stance is or status is today, God always comes through. He always comes through. Number four, enjoy the rich blessings God lavishes on you. This is, this is a great point. I love this point. Christianity is not stoicism. Christianity is not asceticism. Paul said that God richly provides us with everything to what? To enjoy, to enjoy to take pleasure in. That's absolutely fantastic. God's blessings are plentiful. Think about all the good gifts that God gives you. And he wants you to enjoy those good gifts. On the one hand, desiring to be rich leads to ruin and destruction. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Be careful. Yet on the other hand, God gives us abundant blessings and he wants us to enjoy them. Marvelous. Pleasure is good. When certain false teachers in Ephesus were forbidding the good pleasures of marriage and certain cuisine, what did Paul say? For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So enjoying God's good gifts with gratitude, I would say, is essential to the Christian life. Enjoying his gifts with gratitude. Now, sadly, we are tempted to live for cheap thrills, uh, which crowd God out of our life. And we may not actually fully realize how those thrills prevent us from greater pleasure in God himself. Uh, it's tempting to see here on little planet Earth under the oversight of God. It's easy to see ourselves as the experts on what pleasure is and to see somehow God as this cosmic killjoy that's up there trying to rob from us, uh, rob from what is best for us. But God is the origin of pleasure. He gives the good gifts for pleasure. Certainly the Christian life, if, if you know it at all, you understand that it involves self-denial of certain pleasures. You, that, that's part of the game. But you have to understand the purpose. It is for the purpose of pursuing and obtaining greater pleasure in knowing and living for God. The better we know God, the better we understand how to enjoy his rich provision. Too many people don't know they just, they just don't know that the key to enjoying food, 
the key to enjoying drink, the key to enjoying sex, the key to enjoying children or work or leisure or any of God good of God's good gifts is hoping and delighting in God. That's the key. These good things were made for our enjoyment, but a kind of enjoyment that fuels love and gratitude and faithfulness to God, not an enjoyment that makes the good things idols. It's a very different enjoyment. One is to the glory of God. One is to the glory of self. Hoping in God allows you to see and enjoy God's good gifts, even in suffering and pain. Because God is your ultimate source of pleasure. So he gives you a mindset, even in suffering and pain, you're able to pick things to say, oh God, how good you are in that. How gracious, how generous you are, God. God is generous. Is he not generous? Every day he just gives and gives and gives. And his generosity moves us then to be generous. Paul said, they are to do good. To be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Paul set the rich up for this. You're supposed to enjoy God's rich provision and to use your riches to help others, thus storing up for yourselves real and lasting treasure in heaven. So number five, do good. Do good. When a rich person tastes the richness of God's grace, very key to this point. Tasting the richness of God's grace. Grace not only transforms the way that they enjoy their wealth, but grace transforms what they do with their wealth. God's generosity gives his people a big vision for their wealth. Look what I can do for God's glory. God's God's lavish grace overpowers self-indulgence, replacing it with stronger desires for self-sacrifice. And it's not even about money. It's not. It's about the whole self being devoted to good for the benefit of others, to the glory and worship of God. John Calvin said, quote, for the richer any man is, the more abundant are his means of doing good to others. End of quote. Excellent. Now, do you see your wealth as being the means of doing good to others? You know, honestly, I miss that so much. Oh, I miss it. And so God needs to change how we think about wealth by his gospel. He needs to change us of how to to rethink this thing because we bought so many of the culture's lies. And so he he, he has to work this in us. Rich Christians, they're in a unique position to do incredible things for the kingdom. That God has given them that wealth and and the stuff that they can do, amazing good for others. Number six, be rich in good works. Be rich in good works. Rich people in the church were to be rich in good works as well as rich in the pocketbook. Verses 18 and 19 assume that the rich people were saved and by the Holy Spirit capable of good works. I want to ask a very important question. What are good works? How do we define that? How do we think about that? Warren Buffett has pledged, this is amazing, has pledged to give away 99% of his wealth 
I read that he has already given away over $27 billion to charities in just over 10 years. Is Warren Buffett's philanthropy good works? Well, let's first define good works. Heidelberg question 91 asks this, but what are good works? Tell us, please. The answer is precise, and it's exactly right. Listen, only those which are done out of true faith. In accordance with the law of God and to his glory and not those based on our own opinion or on precepts of men. So unless something is done by true faith in Christ in harmony with God's law and for God's glory, it's not a good work. Not a good work. Now, is that right? Well, Romans 14.23 says this. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Take that to heart. Hebrews 11 verse 6 echoes this. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. Impossible. Cannot do it without faith and union with Christ. So is Warren Buffett's philanthropy or any other giver, don't want to just unnecessarily pick on Warren Buffett, who lavishly gives, is that considered good works considering Warren Buffett is an admitted agnostic? Any generosity or philanthropy or sacrificial deed that does not proceed from trust in Christ is reprehensible in the sight of God. The acts may benefit mankind much, may be good from our perspective for society, but they do not please God because they are not done through Christ who is the only one who ever did good works and the only one who ever pleased God. Jesus Christ. However, and you need to get this, when a rich child of God devotes themselves to good works by faith in Christ and uses their wealth to help others, as imperfect as it may be, their father is really, really pleased. Pleased at their heart, pleased at their expression. In Christ, that's everything. I love what this multi-millionaire, uh, best-selling author who takes no royalties from his books for himself. I, I love what he says here, and it captures Paul's idea quite well. Here is a vocation that will bring you more satisfaction than if you became a millionaire ten times over. Develop the extraordinary skill for detecting the burdens of others and devote yourself daily to making them lighter. How might your money help make the burdens of others lighter? Well, first, your heart has to see the need. It, it, if our ears are closed to the eyes of the poor, if we're not seeing with a heart wanting to, we're not going to do it. Second, you must commit yourself to making the burdens lighter. And money is an incredible tool to do just that. Are you committed to not only seeing, but to doing something about it? We are extremely wealthy in America. This leads to number seven, be generous. Generous is not something you do per se. It's something that you are. Uh, aren't we naturally selfish? Of course we are. But the Holy Spirit makes the selfish person a generous person. Paul's command for the rich Christians of Ephesus was entirely consistent with who they were in Christ. And it's the same for us today. You see, apart from Christ, the command to be generous is a law 
which condemns us in our selfishness. Apart from Christ, we can't be generous. We're just condemned under this big weight of be generous, and we can't be generous because we're selfish. How can we overcome selfishness in our hearts? Willing ourselves to be what we cannot be on our own is exasperating and depressing. It will frustrate you every day. But when God gives you a new heart in Christ and puts his generosity in you by the Holy Spirit, then the command to be generous is our joy. It's our, we, of course, I just love being generous. We want to do it. In Christ, God gives us what we need to be what he wants us to be. We are not without sufficient grace to be very open-handed people. God already loves us in Christ. Now be generous. You're not earning his love. He loves you. Now follow him and be generous. Listen, listen to what the gospel does to a thief. The, the transformation. Ephesians 4.28 says this. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So one day, he's stealing right out from under their nose, picking them clean, and then he gets a new heart, and by the power of the Spirit, the next day, he's now toiling, he gets a job to work in order to give to people. He, he may be tempted to go back, he may actually revert sometimes to his old thievery, but now the desire of his heart is to work hard and work honestly to please his generous Father who gives and gives and gives through Christ to him. And notice the purpose of his honor, honest work. Did you catch it when I read that? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. He goes to work so he can share. The gospel replaces selfishness, greed, covetousness, and materialism with generosity. The gospel changes who you are, and the gospel changes what you want out of life. The gospel... This is so dangerous because people misunderstand Christianity in the core of what Jesus is all about. The gospel is not do this. Get your life right. What's wrong with you? It's rather this. Christ has done this for you. Therefore, you are now free to do this. You see the difference? When generosity fills the heart, it's going to overflow somehow. That's what having a new heart does. It just, it's going to come out. You're going to be a generous person. Saints, be generous because that is who God made you to be in Christ, a generous person. And when you are generous, it shows that you hope in God and it makes you ready to share. So number eight, be ready to share. Like a muzzle loader ready to fire, being generous means our hammer of generosity is cocked and we're ready to pull the trigger at any time. We, we are loaded with God's generosity and ready to share. Ho hoping in God gives Christians the readiness and the willingness to share what they have and to share themselves. To share themselves. Setting, this, this is why it's so serious about loving riches. We need to hear this. Setting our hopes on riches deafens us to the cries of others because fear or greed or selfishness fills our, fills our ears instead. We hoard to protect ourselves. I'm going to make this little safe environment for myself and my money's going to create it for me. 
We hoard and protect ourselves instead of giving ourselves to bless others, which shows that our view of God is entirely too small. We have a small view of God and we're missing entirely the purpose of our wealth. And don't hear that Paul is saying, don't buy anything for yourself. And if you do, you should feel guilty. That's not the point at all. Uh, verse 7 or 17 actually pre prevents us from going there. But the gospel changes our perspective. And now we're looking for ways in our life to bless others, even though it means we're going to do with less. And in some cases, we're going to do with a lot less. Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So listen to the question carefully. Are you living for the greater blessing, the greater joy, the greater satisfaction, the greater fulfillment by, uh, by looking for ways to share? Because when you become a generous and ready to share and a giving person, your, your happiness level is just going to keep rising even if you have very little. Verse 18 is the best long-term investment strategy that you can have. And let me just ask, very honestly, can Morgan Stanley help you invest your money in a way that's going to yield you eternal rewards? Can J.P. Morgan Chase help you invest your money in a way that pays you dividends a billion years from now? And verse 18 is so much more than just throwing money at problems. Hey, we're the rich Americans, man. We'll come in and just give you a lot of money. Is that really what this is about? Verse 18 is about investing you in God-glorifying works. It's not just throwing the money at a problem and looking the other way. It's investing you. You're invested in the needs of other people. And, and if you don't have much money and God has given you just a little bit to steward, you can still have open hands to share. Oh, yeah. And, and your works can be so precious and beautiful in his sight because it's your heart before him. Now, I want to see our church become an untamable force for good in Mannheim, Lancaster County, and really I want to see it all over the world. Our work that we're doing right here in Penryn, Mannheim, exploding out into the world, I, I it's a desire. I know we can do it by the Spirit's grace. But how? Well, I don't really know. I don't have all the answers. I'm not sure how to do this. But, but I know it starts with our hearts. Uh, we must hope in God, do good works, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. And if those things happen here, if that is the ethos of our church, imagine what we can do for God's glory if we hope in God, pull together, and get to work. Jesus gave us a tremendous example to follow. Uh, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Think about that. Right there it is. Christ divested himself of heavenly treasures, riches, wealth, in order to make us eternally rich in God. By his spirit, Jesus helps us divest ourselves for the good of others. He helps us do this. He puts it in us. So, so there you have your very simple strategy. Do not be haughty. 
Never set your hopes on riches. Always set your hopes on God. Enjoy the rich blessings God gives you. Do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. That's how to be truly rich. But let's make sure that we're thinking about riches in the right way. Uh, there, there are greater and more secure riches than the uncertain riches of this life, this age. Number nine, true riches are the gains graciously given you in the next life because you invested yourself wisely in this life. To live is Christ and to die is gain. One line like that can change how you understand wealth. It's going to change your economics. God has told us in his word, riches do not profit in the day of wrath. But righteousness delivers from death. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. For riches do not last forever, and does a crown endure to all generations? People who understand to live is Christ and to die is gain don't waste their lives storing up earthly treasures. They have a bigger vision, and they, they invest themselves and their money in things that yield them bigger returns. That's important to them. Verse 19, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let me test you here. In verse 18, where does the benefit go? To others. Do you see it? The benefit goes to others. In verse 19, where does it go? The benefit goes to the one who invests themselves in helping others. Verse 18 is the strategy for you to store up eternal treasures for yourself. When, when your hope is in God, every time you invest yourself or your wealth in doing good for others for the glory of God, you are stockpiling treasures for yourself for the future age. And those treasures are greater treasures than the ones that you will get here. Riches make a lousy foundation for the future. They are so uncertain, yet storing up massive treasures in heaven is a great foundation for, for the future because, once again, God is certain. God is certain. Now, there's something here that, that you must think about very carefully. Notice that the purpose of storing up treasure for yourself is to take hold of that which is truly life. Doing good, being rich in good works, being generous and ready to share, listen carefully, are necessary for eternal life. Now, this is very tricky, so please listen carefully. I don't want you leaving misunderstanding what I'm saying. Your good works cannot in any way merit or earn eternal life. Eternal life is entirely God's rich grace, his sovereign grace. It's given as a gift. You can do nothing to earn it. But there is a connection between doing good works in this life and obtaining true life. You must do good works to obtain eternal life. This does not undermine grace. It actually exalts grace because God's works are done, the good works rather, are done only by God's grace and by his Holy Spirit. Our fruit in life comes through union with Christ. And if there is no fruit, if there is no good works, there is no union with Christ. So people who claim to know and love Jesus, and there are many, but who don't want to do good works and don't actually do any good works should not feel assured that their profession of faith is genuine. 
If their faith is genuine, the good works will be there because God's grace will produce them. God's saving grace is God's sanctifying grace is God's stimulating grace. Though good works earn us nothing from God, and though all that we have, including our eternal treasure, is grace, it's all grace, good works are necessary for salvation because they are an inevitable response to God's redeeming grace. Inevitable. Will happen 100% of the time for the person who is truly redeemed. God saves, and then by his spirit, we respond with grateful obedience Now, why would any person with money be rich in good works and give themselves and their money away? Why? What in the world? Because they want to grab onto that which is truly life. That's why. They want true life. They're not satisfied with life as culture sees it. I think Dr. George Knight summarizes the point well if you've been confused with what I just said. Maybe you'll get it with George here. Quote, good works demonstrate the reality of faith and salvation and are needed to receive eternal life. What both Paul and Jesus are saying is that one who has accepted God's grace and salvation must evidence it in one's life. Thus, they are quite willing to say as both an encouragement and a warning that this evidence of salvation is a necessity for the reception of eternal life. End of quote. A necessity for the reception of eternal life. If you want it, you have to do good works, but not in a meritorious way in a response of God's gratitude to his grace. But it's necessary. You can't do good works apart from Christ. That's what he said. Your good works can't merit eternal life. But if you are to take hold of eternal life, good works are necessary. They serve as evidence or assurance that you have died and rose with Christ and that eternal life is actually yours for the taking. Jesus explained this really well. He said, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That's how you prove it, that it's real. Good works are the confirmation of our union with Christ and life in him. Maybe another way to think about it in uh, about verses 18 and 19 is like this. And Jesus said, let's see if I can do this. This is risky. Uh, but Luke 12, 32 through 34, my kids can test me on this. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. With treasures in heaven, I gotta look. I'm sorry, I got, I'm getting nervous. For, uh, money treasures in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think that's probably a good summary. If the kingdom is already yours, invest yourself now to hoard up treasure in that kingdom. This world is not your kingdom. And we need massive grace in order to do this. So then any gain you receive is to God's glory because God richly provides you with everything. There it is, everything, including his grace and the ability for good works. The last point I want to make is this. Number 10, it's all about God's sovereign grace. It's all about God's sovereign grace. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. 
For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. A wealthy man was going on a journey to a distant land. He entrusted his estate to his servant, giving him full oversight and responsibility for the affairs and the protection of that estate. That servant is a guardian or a warden of the property of his master. That's what Paul was telling Timothy to do. The sound words uh, and doctrine of the apostolic Christian faith were a priceless deposit entrusted to Timothy to keep watch over like an armed guard protecting the king's castle from against enemy attack. He was not to let anything to happen to that precious gospel. J.N.D. Kelly rightly said, quote, the Christian message is not something which the church's minister works out for himself or is entitled to add to. It is a divine revelation which has been committed to his care and which it is his bounden duty to pass on unimpaired to others. Timothy and every pastor after him has the great calling to guard the apostolic gospel by preaching it clearly and accurately and refuting false doctrine. The pulpit is no place for innovation. Preachers have the responsibility to protect, preserve, and promote the uncorrupted, unadulterated, and uncontaminated gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, Timothy needed to steer clear of worthless false doctrine, which has, uh, had caused some to abandon the Christian faith, their false doctrine was falsely called knowledge. Timothy needed true knowledge of the law and gospel. Well, how would Timothy rise to such great a task? How, how did Paul end the letter? Grace be with you. It's all about grace. That's how Timothy and the Ephesian church needed to do all that Paul had written, by grace through faith. And it was a hard road. He had some very hard things to do. Interestingly, you here right at the end is plural, uh, showing that though Paul was writing primarily to Timothy, he also is, is uh, directing it to the church in Ephesus. The church needs grace. Our church needs grace. You need grace. I need grace. We all need grace. Paul began his letter with grace, and Paul ended his letter with grace. We need grace. None of this letter happens in our church. None of it is precious to us at all without grace. Grace. You know, for us to be a healthy church, which is certainly my aim, I hope it's yours, which carries out the things in this letter, which does this stuff, we need God's grace. God's grace is the foundation upon which we build. Now, you've heard a lot throughout this series. There's been a lot of content that we've covered and I think probably the right way to end this whole thing is to plead with God for his marvelous grace. And then after I pray, I'd like to sing a little refrain, if we could. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the sacrifice, the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, which is very precious to us. Thank you for being so generous and ready to share. If you had not shared, we would perish in hell forever. But you have shared and we have an inheritance in heaven waiting for us that is mind-blowing, that makes the riches of this world look silly. So God, thank you for your rich grace. And I plead for your grace 
I plead for your grace that your sovereign grace would produce these things in us here at Jerusalem Church. It has to be your spirit or we're just going to get lost in selfishness. So I pray, God, that you would, by your spirit, be very merciful to us, gracious to us, kind to us, compassionate to us, and to lead us in the ways of generosity and good works. Help us to be filthy rich in good works, to be a church that is just so stinking wealthy, overrunning with good works that glorify you so that people can see those good works and magnify your name and not give any credit to us, but give credit to your marvelous grace. So God, I pray that you would do fantastic things at Jerusalem Church for many years, long after we're gone. That would be to the praise of your glorious grace. Please, God, do it for your glory. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.